Which brings us to Act 3. Jesus makes a very public royal entry into Jerusalem for Passover. People are hailing him as the Messiah. Then he enters into the temple courtyard and he asserts his royal authority by running out the thieves and crooks and stopping the sacrificial system. Then this kicks off a whole week of Jesus debating and confronting the leaders of Israel, condemning their hypocrisy, and so they set in motion a plan to have him killed. And Jesus warns his disciples, predicting that Jerusalem and its temple will be destroyed destroyed within a generation and his disciples will be persecuted just like him until he returns one day to bring God's kingdom fully over the world. And it all leads up to the final night. Jesus has his last Passover meal with the disciples, a symbolic meal that told the story of Israel's liberation from slavery through the death of the Passover lamb. And Jesus takes these symbols and he gives them new meaning. They point to the liberation from sin and death that will happen through the death of the suffering servant Messiah. Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we're reading out of Mark chapter 11. Verses 1 through 10. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you're really lucky this morning because this sermon is pretty short. The last service got out really early. You might get to go to lunch early for all you know. Uh, Palm Sunday is a really, it's kind of a strange day because you read about these crowds that are joyfully welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, knowing that in just a few days, the crowds will be calling for his death. And it's a, a poignant moment. Jesus knows exactly what he's getting into. He knows that this is it. He knows that Jerusalem is where prophets go to die. Do I need a new mic? I tripped something. The side. There we go. We'll see if that helps. If not, I'll just yell really loud. There we go. So he has to know 
that a lot of the people who are shouting Hosanna are the same people who in just a few days are going to be calling for his crucifixion. And he still goes through with it. Now, would you have been able to do the same thing? Would you have been able to go through with that kind of sacrifice for people who not only might never be willing to do the same thing for you, but but who could flip on you that quickly? What if that is exactly the kind of love that we are supposed to have as followers of Jesus? Jesus is really deliberate about the way he enters into Jerusalem. This isn't like a last-minute plan that he's concocted here. He knows what he's doing. The, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, prophesies that the Messiah will enter Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey. So Jesus intentionally enters the city in a way that publicly proclaims he's the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. It's a massive statement, and it's, it's a very public declaration that everyone who saw him would have understood. Everyone knows exactly the claim he's making by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And it's a huge risk because it is absolutely going to tick off the people in power. And it's going to create a lot of very specific expectations about what he will do next. And he knows he's not going to meet those expectations. The crowd yells, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They clearly expect that Jesus is going to reestablish the kingdom of David, the literal physical kingdom of Israel, that he will come in, he'll rally the people, he'll claim the throne, he'll kick the Romans out. And Jesus knows he's not going to do any of that. But the crowd expects it, and that's why they're excited. That's why they welcome him with joy and they give him the royal treatment. And we know that this moment makes a huge impression on the disciples because it's recorded in all four Gospels, which is actually kind of unusual. And John's Gospel is 90% different from the other three. This is part of the 10% that John thought he should repeat. Obviously, this is one of those days that stuck out to all of the people who were with Jesus from the beginning all the way through to the end. In this moment, everyone is showing their love for Jesus through personal sacrifice. Someone's given up their donkey. The disciples have put their own clothes on the back of the donkey for like a makeshift saddle. People in the crowd are laying their own clothes down on the dirt to keep the dust from getting all over the man on the back of the donkey. They're going out into the fields and cutting branches to smooth out the road and keep the dust down. It's this truly beautiful, exciting moment. Jesus, the King, is entering the holy city to shouts of acclamation and demonstrations of sacrificial love. But we all know what comes next. We know that some of the same people shouting Hosanna on this day will, on Friday, shout, crucify him. Which begs the question, how is that even possible? How is it possible in such a short span of time to go from love and joy and excitement to outright hatred. 
the crowds who are singing his praises on this road are not people who live in Jerusalem. They're pilgrims who are on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, because that's what you do. If you have the means, if you have the ability, you all go and spend a week in Jerusalem every year to celebrate the holiest day of the year. So a lot of these people would have been from Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry, where half of his miracles were, were performed. They have seen what Jesus can do. They've heard him teach. They know what he's doing. They know what he's capable of. They're swept up in all the excitement. By this point, Jesus is the biggest celebrity in their world. Everyone's heard the name. Everyone's heard the stories. The word will have spread far and wide. They know what this guy's been up to. They all think he's probably the Messiah. They know he's claiming he's the Messiah. And now they know he's on his way to Jerusalem and they think they know what comes next. So even the people who haven't seen him perform miracles, even the people who haven't heard him preach, are there on the road. They're excited. They are traveling to Jerusalem with the Messiah. They think that's who he is. They're caught up in all the excitement. They think that they are witnessing the moment when God will finally redeem Israel and inaugurate the kingdom. And they're not wrong. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do. But it isn't going to look the way that they think it will. And for the rest of this week, Jesus finds himself in these never-ending series of public confrontations with two opposing factions the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he will publicly make enemies out of both sides by contradicting them, by calling them out on their hypocrisy, and by repeatedly making the claim that he is God in the flesh. And he will consistently refuse to confront the Romans. Once he gets off the donkey, nothing he does is what they expected the Messiah to do. In fact, it's the exact opposite. They expect the Messiah to come in to back either the Pharisees or the Sadducees, depending on who you talk to, and to confront the Romans. Jesus comes in and confronts the Jewish religious leaders and ignores the Romans. And the thing is, nothing he says or does is actually surprising. It's all laid out in the prophets. The prophets of Israel all are clear. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to confront Israel with her own sins and her own unfaithfulness. doesn't mention a thing about the Romans. problem is they've misread the prophets. They've misread the scriptures. They're so wrapped up in the things that they have hoped in that are not present in the scripture that they have gone back and twisted the words of the prophets around. And all of a sudden following Jesus becomes a lot harder. A lot more intimidating. Once they realize that he wasn't going to do what they wanted him to do all along, the passion and the excitement starts to fade. And when it becomes clear that following Jesus puts them at odds with the most influential people in their world, the crowds flip on him. Everyone is on board with following Jesus when it's easy. Everyone's on board with following Jesus when he doesn't challenge you, when he... When he just does all the things you hope he'll do and makes your life simple. But so long as we live in a fallen world, that is not how following Jesus will go every single day. Being a Christian will be costly from time to time. 
we're going to briefly look at a different gospel in Matthew chapter 27. At what happens when Pilate confronts the crowds who are demanding for Jesus to be executed. <clears throat> yeah, I've got it too. It's okay. So Matthew 27 and verse 15. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew, oh, that's the wrong verse. One ahead to 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Asked the governor. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. There's two things in that passage that, that are really important. First is that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who we know from all kinds of other historical sources, has no qualms whatsoever about killing people for very minor reasons, cannot figure out why this crowd wants Jesus dead. And he is working really hard to avoid killing him. Even after they've demanded his execution, even after they've chosen the other prisoner, he gives them one more chance. What would you have me do with him? And then when they demand his crucifixion, why? What crime has he done? Pilate's the only person there who can see that this is not okay. So they choose someone else. He offers them the choice between Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, who's really done nothing wrong, who's hurt nobody, or a convicted murderer. And they pick the murderer. They pick the other Jesus. Now, when it says that he's a convicted criminal, the other Gospels will say he's a murderer or he's got some other conviction. But what underlies all of that is, most likely, he's an insurrectionist. He's led a rebellion against Rome. Which means, very likely, he himself has claimed to be the Messiah. If he's led a rebellion against Rome, if he's led people in insurrection, that means he told them, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the Messiah. Let's go overthrow the Romans. And he failed. They chose the man who was behaving as they always hoped the Messiah would behave. The one who gathered people around him to try and overthrow the oppressors. They chose, by the way, someone who is not going to die for his crimes, but who has gladly led others to death over the real Messiah. They chose the wrong Jesus. But they chose him because he fit their idea of what the Messiah was supposed to do. Even though he failed at it, even though it hadn't worked, they stuck with that idea. We tend to think that the crowds on Palm Sunday and the crowds on Good Friday were different. 
but the reality is there's a lot of overlap. And the reality is that most of us will fall somewhere in that overlap. We will have days when we cheer Jesus on because he's doing exactly what we want him to do. And we'll have days when we would call for his crucifixion given the chance because he's challenging our most deeply held ideas or he's pushing us somewhere we don't want to go. One of the most shocking things about the Gospels and something that we tend to overlook is the way that Jesus is constantly redefining the values of the people he's preaching to. He resets all the boundaries. People who were unclean are now your neighbor. Foods that were impure are safe to eat. The powerful are weak. The poor are rich. The weak are strong. And that's what gets him in trouble. It's what makes following him so challenging and so intimidating. He doesn't think the way that we do. He doesn't see things the way that we do. He doesn't value the same things that we do. And he demands that we conform ourselves to his way of seeing the world. And that requires that we die. That we die to our old ways of doing things. That we we nail the old ways to the cross with Jesus. It requires us to take up our cross daily. Friends, if, if your faith in Jesus has never made your life difficult, it's never caused you pain or stress or anxiety, something's wrong. That's a sure sign that something's wrong. And it's not just because being faithful means that we have different values than the rest of the world. And this is not about persecution, because let's be real, we are not facing persecution in any meaningful sense. But it's because we are required, absolutely required, to love everyone around us unconditionally. Even when they reject everything we stand for. Even when we have deep, fundamental disagreements with them, we are not allowed to hate them. We aren't even allowed to be rude or dismissive of them. Jesus expects us, expects all of us, to love unconditionally and at any cost. So I want to invite you, between now and Friday, to reflect on what unconditional love looks like. Not in abstract terms, not as like a hypothetical what-if scenario, but, but in the most concrete way you can. Who in your life right now do you need to show unconditional, costly love to? And what price will you have to pay in order to do that? Because on Friday, when we gather for worship, we're going to see exactly what price Jesus paid for his unconditional love for us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.